Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for tuning in to AOA. I'm Mike Pearson, and this week I am coming to you from Washington, D.C. I'm here in town for the National Association of Farm Broadcasters annual Washington Watch, getting caught up with a lot of the legislators and regulators here in Washington, D.C. We'll be bringing snippets of those conversations here out over the next several days. I do tell you that because there is a train track here right across the street from where I'm recording in D.C., and they are not having trouble with trains here in D.C. The track is very busy. So if you hear a train horn in the background, that's on me, folks. Thanks for sticking with us. In today's show, we're going to be talking to Darren Newsom here in just a moment about the markets. Darren also has been writing about the S&P. We're getting his thoughts on the equity markets as well. And then in segment two, Jeff Johnston, the lead economist for communications at CoBank, will be joining us. That bipartisan infrastructure bill included some substantial money for rural broadband. Jeff's going to give us an update on just how those funds are coming. In segment three, we're going to talk retailer level for ethanol. Ron Lamberti, the senior vice president of the American Coalition for Ethanol, is going to join us. He works with retailers across the country at the fuel level. We're going to get the spin on just how things are looking from their perspective as ethanol moves into the headlines. And then finally, at the end of the show, we're going to check in with Chandler Gould, the CEO of the National Association of Wheat Growers. There's been a lot of food assistance in the news recently, and some of that directly impacts wheat growers. And Chandler is going to share with us an update on that space. But as I mentioned, we're talking to Darren Newsom right off the bat. Darren, thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me on again, Mike. Let's talk first here about the commodity markets. Darren, let's start there. We saw crop uh, planting progress reported yesterday. Corn at 14% versus the five-year average at 33%. Beans, 8% planted versus 13 on that five-year average. Spring wheat, 19% versus 28. We're behind the eight ball, Darren, across the board. Is the price action you're seeing today indicative of a market that's uh, only 50% of its traditional planting pace? Well, let me ask you this. 14% 14% of what? We don't know its total. Well, I mean, touche. 14% of what? We, we have no idea. I mean, we, what, what if we're actually 50% done? We don't know. We, we don't know. And that's what makes these numbers. These are all made-up numbers. They're arbitrary, random numbers just thrown out there to get people to talk about something. It's a way of keeping score with numbers that don't actually mean anything because we don't know what they're being compared against. We have no idea what final acres are going to be. So do I think the market's pricing it? Let's look at what we've seen in corn and soybeans, new crop spread. Soybeans have been inverted. We aren't going to have enough production. Is it because of planting? Is it because of acres? Is it because of weather, yield, whatever? All of the above. Corn moved from a slight uh, inverse to a weak carry over the last month. Why is that? Well, we did see some planters rolling over the course of April. But again, it's not going to be enough. Overall production, when we get the next harvest right now, the commercial side's telling us it's not going to be enough. And it doesn't matter what the imaginary numbers are. So, Darren, if that's the case, and as you're watching those spreads, particularly in corn, where you've seen that wheat weak carry develop. Do you anticipate that to strengthen as I imagine we do see more planters get out there and start to roll? I, possibly here short term. Uh, I think we could short term. Uh, then it's going to get to be, okay, what is the summer weather? When Once we get the crop in the field, and we will get the crop in the field, and the markets are showing us that, then what does the weather turn out to be? Is it going to stay cool and damp? Is it going to get hot? Are we going to be, are we going to tr- be trying to pollinate this crop during the heat of summer? Are we going to see a hotter than normal summer? All these questions lay before us. And if the weather plays out right, it would not be surprising to see just as we saw with the 2020-21 market, the 2022-23 market certainly could go into an inverse. And, and again, that just sets the stage for another fun year uh, as we try to uh, market and merchandise this crop. 
Well, Darren, one group of growers who have certainly seen a challenging year this past year are spring wheat producers. As you look up at the Dakotas, mm -hmm. as you look at the, the planting pace that's been reported, where do you think spring wheat is coming? Is $12 still enough to incentivize more acres into that production? Yeah, it, why not $14, $15, $16, $20? Because if you're still buried under snow, it doesn't matter what the price is telling you that they want you to plant, uh, that the market wants you to plant uh, more spring wheat problem is you can't get out there to do it so that's what the, that's what the real issue is going to be now if we extend that that same argument out we've talked about soybeans we've talked about corn spring wheat also inverted new crop forward curve cotton inverted new crop forward curve there's not going to be enough acres of any of these spring planted crops and yes so the markets are going to have to continue to push to try to get uh, to try to get as many acres as possible but the calendar's against us. I mean, at some point, the final decisions are going to have to be made. I think it's already been made. Uh, and then we'll just have to see what we wind up with later this fall, this winter, when we finally get a tally on what the acres were. Darren, while the market is grappling with all the potential weather issues of the future and trade issues that impact the ag markets directly, there's the bigger issue of global money flow. Of course, the equities have been a very attractive investment space for a lot of that managed money. As we're here in spring 2022, interest rates are rising. Are equities going to continue to be attractive for that managed fund? And how's that going to impact investments into commodities? Yeah, Newsom's market rule number seven is stock markets go up over time. So I think long term, uh, you're still going to see money going into the equity markets. But, you know, as I've been talking about, since January, we've seen some long term patterns develop, some bearish patterns develop. And this is indicating that we should see, possibly for much of 2022, uh, the U.S., the three key U.S. stock indexes move lower some global markets as well so you know the one i've been looking at is the s p 500 you know we closed you know in that 4100 range uh you know at the end of april i still think there's a good you know if, if only just a couple hundred points uh best case scenario to possibly five six seven hundred points down uh over the course of the trend that it's in right now what that could do is it, is it opens the door to two distinct possibilities in commodities one panic selling because we already see a large non-commercial uh, presence in many of these commodities. On the other hand, if there's been a lot of money made, so if that money's just pulled out of equities for a while and it's looking for a place to go, it's going to look for these commodities with long-term bullish fundamentals, and that's just about any of the markets and any of the sectors. So it actually could increase the investment in commodities, helping them to push higher as long as the fundamentals stay bullish. Darren, do you think this equity downturn has started already? Now are we just watching it and to see where the bottom finally comes? No, I think it's already started. Like I said, we got a reversal in, uh, in January. Uh, we extended it more in February and March. Then in April, we had a clear breakdown. Uh, so I think it's it's on its way. I think we've got plenty of time now for this market to continue to go lower. We'll see what the what the FOMC does on Wednesday. Uh, where they're supposed, you know, they're, they're scheduled, expected, let me put it that way, to make an interest rate increase. We'll see how the markets react. We will indeed, folks. That's Darren Newsom of Darren Newsom Analysis. Darren, thanks for joining us on the show today. Thanks so much for having me on again, Mike. And folks, stick with us when AOA returns. Jeff Johnston of CoBank will join us. We'll talk about this rollout for rural broadband across the country. Stay with us here on AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Soil, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Soil Ship Enterprise to explore soil life, to boldly grow where cover crops have never grown before. Farmer's Log, soil date 31655.4. We've come across some strange but incredibly helpful life forms. We didn't have to travel far to find them, but these organisms have proven invaluable on our trip through the solar system. They help feed us by nourishing and protecting our crops. They've built our soil structure to make it more resilient to the harsh weather we encounter. Our sensors indicate they're even helping us store carbon that plants take out of the atmosphere and put it back into the soil. 
Guess you can say our living and life-giving soil is the best thing to cling on to. Um, sorry. <clears throat> That's soil fleet humor. <laughs> Visit your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today and learn more about the basics and benefits of soil health. This message brought to you by USDA and this radio station. Every Tuesday, we'll be sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS. Join us and learn how CHS creates the vital connections that empower agriculture, helping farmers and ranchers like you succeed. We'll hear from different voices from throughout the cooperative system, sharing stories about how good things happen when people work together. Join us around the table every Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice U.S. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today, ladies and gentlemen. We're continuing our conversation here on this Tuesday, May 3rd. And next, we're going to talk communications. For those of you out in rural America, you know that that internet quality can be spotty, to say the least. And hopefully you're in an area where you can get on the internet and make use of 21st century technologies. But there are a surprising number of people in rural America that just can't say that. They don't have access to the tools that uh, a lot of us are used to dealing with here in 2022. Well, Jeff Johnston is the lead economist for communications with CoBank, and he has been tracking this issue for some time. Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, as we think about rural broadband, that was a topic that picked up a lot of headlines during the discussions over the bipartisan infrastructure bill this past year. Jeff, that bill did pass. Can you refresh our memories? How much in that bill was earmarked specifically for rural broadband or rural communications more broadly? Sure. There was $65 billion allocated for rural broadband, of which about $42.5 billion has been allocated towards building broadband networks in underserved and unserved areas of rural America. And then the remaining is for various programs, whether they be subsidies and others to help people pay their broadband bills. So that $65 billion is a big number. At least it sounds like a big number. Jeff, is it big in the context of federal funding for rural communications? Yeah, I mean, it's that we're seeing, we're seeing federal money thrown at rural America specifically for broadband like we've never seen before. So if you, for example, take $42.5 billion for building new networks, and then you combine it with existing programs administered by the FCC, you know, you're looking at somewhere just north of $60 billion that's being allocated towards building broadband networks in unserved and underserved areas. So a significant amount of money, absolutely, unprecedented actually, but is it big enough? 
I'm not so sure it is. We still might need some more. Oh boy, that is that is something else. Jeff, as you think about this 60 plus billion dollars that's being allocated here in the 2022 year, how much of that is actually going to be on the ground construction build out and what's the timeline for kind of getting the wheels started on those big projects? Sure. So, right now the the uh, there's two programs. So there's the infrastructure bill which we've talked about and then the other program which has about 20 billion dollars in it is the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund, otherwise referred to as RDOF. And the RDOF is, is, is moving forward. That money's being allocated to recipients in a reverse auction process. So that, that, that process is well underway at this point in time. The $42.5 billion is actually being managed by the Commerce Department and within the Commerce Department specifically NTIA, which is a new sort of twist to how federal money is being doled out for broadband bills. And we're just now in the process of figuring out how the NTIA is going to be distributing money to the states because they're the ones who are ultimately going to be writing the checks, if you will, to the broadband builders in rural America, whereas before it was the FCC. So that process is, is, is happening now. Uh, the rules of engagement are being discussed, and I would expect us to hear more about specifically process-related um, things probably sometime in the back half of this year, and then I, my guess would be is sometime in, in early next year, we'd actually start, um, you know, doling out the money and, and putting plans in place and actually, you know, putting fiber in the ground or towers up or however they're going about it. All right. Thank you, Jeff. And we are going to reconnect with you, Jeff, if you don't mind. Producer Mark's going to just dial you back in, get that phone call, see if we can get that connection a little bit clearer. And while Jeff is reconnecting this morning, I had the chance to speak with uh, Secretary Buttigieg of the Department of Transportation. We talked about a lot of issues that are impacting agriculture. And one of the comments that he made was that the DOT is going to be working with affiliates. Jeff has mentioned these smaller states and rural areas looking to secure funding. DOT is going to be doing a similar thing. They're going to be offering technical assistance to these states in order to help get them qualified for were the funds that are rolling out in this infrastructure plan. And uh, that hopefully, he says, is going to allow a lot of, uh, of these smaller states, these more rural states, to complete the requirements, the checklists that are required in order to qualify for this funding. Um, it was brought up by Brian Winnikins that a lot of times these rural areas just don't have the resources to complete these long uh, application processes for funding, and hopefully the DOT will make that a little bit easier. So we'll have that conversation coming a little bit later this week. It does sound like we've got Jeff Johnson back. Jeff, you've got us. Uh, we're, we're back with you. Thanks for reconnecting. How do things sound? Uh, they sound fine on my end. My apologies. So hopefully we'll be okay here going forward. Not a problem. Jeff, I want to ask you as an economist, when you're thinking about the differences in productivity between a place that has high quality, fast, high speed broadband versus a place that doesn't, maybe they're still connecting via dial up, you know, maybe they're using some other method to connect to the internet. How do you as an economist calculate the differences and the costs for those folks who don't have that high speed access? Sure. Well, there's certainly a correlation between having access to broadband networks and economic growth in rural America. You know, nowadays people are afforded the ability to work uh, from home or work remotely. So, but in order to do that, of course, you need um, you need uh, good broadband access. So, you know, being able to keep people in rural America with broadband access is important. Maybe attract people to rural America who otherwise wouldn't have moved there, but now can because of their ability to, to work from home all contributes to economic growth in the community. And then from a farmer and rancher's perspective, being able to take advantage of all of the applications from a precision ag standpoint that can really drive significant productivity gains you know, at the farm or on the ranch is significant. And, and you can't, in, some, in a number of cases, you can't take advantage of those applications if you do not have access to reliable broadband. So, so there's really economic benefits, you know, on the farm, on the ranch, as well as just at home in terms of attracting uh, new people or keeping people within rural America. Jeff, as you think about this build out of rural broadband, of course, I imagine this is going to be physical wired connections for 
for a lot of people. And I'm curious about satellite internet. We've seen Elon Musk Starlink get a lot of headlines recently as they've opened up usage in Ukraine. I know a lot of my friends in rural America are excited about satellite internet coming to this country. Does that change the outlook for wireless connectivity in this country more broadly? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a multi-pronged approach, Mike, to address the digital divide. Satellite communications, I think, is sort of one arrow in the quiver, if you will, to address this. I mean, however, look, this is a, a new technology. We're not really sure yet exactly how these satellite networks are going to respond when you start to load up hundreds or millions of subscribers on these networks. I mean, there could be some bandwidth limitations from a spectrum standpoint. And then there's a lot of other things related to space junk and, and the economics of the business model in general. So certainly some exciting numbers out of Elon Musk initially. And I know that people who have been using it like it a lot, but I think, you know, I think we still need to, to, to not get too ahead of ourselves from a satellite perspective, because I think there's still a lot of questions around the feasibility long-term of satellite wireless broadband communications. But there's also a lot of other opportunities on, on the terrestrial front. So these are you know, traditional towers that are being built to provide fixed wireless connectivity or wireless connectivity uh, to areas that don't have service today. There's a lot of really exciting things going on there with proven technology, proven business models that I think uh, can, can afford the likes of you know, pharma cooperatives to build their own private wireless networks uh, so that their members can take advantage of precision ag applications or just have broadband at home. So again, a lot of proven applications, proven technologies that are, for me, I think are really exciting in these sort of higher cost, hard, hard to reach, sort of sparsely populated areas of rural America. As you get uh, more fixed wireless coverage into those sparsely populated areas, Jeff, do you think we will see true nationwide 5G wireless connectivity at some point? I think that, um, you know, I think eventually, um, I think that we will. But now, but it's important to recognize, Mike, that all 5G networks are not the same. So I know it's exciting to think about 5G in rural America with these gigabit plus speeds that you're able to do all sorts of great things from a, you know, whether it's from an enterprise perspective with applications that require these low latency, really high speed networks. But, so, but there's, there's different types and different speeds of 5G. So it's just important to recognize uh, those distinctions. Unfortunately, you know, where you're going to see these really fast, high speed 5G networks it's probably not going to be in rural America. It's going to be in urban and, and, and maybe suburban America. But I think that there's still opportunity to deploy 5G networks in rural America with speeds that are faster than 4G. But again, I don't right. want to set expectations that we're going to have, you know, gigabit type speeds. All right, lots to come in the space of rural broadband. Our thanks to Jeff Johnston, lead economist for communications at CoBank. Folks, stick with us for more AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. University trials and grower use proves that adding tough 5EC to the post tank mix significantly improves the control of resistant weeds such as Palmer amaranth, water hemp, and kochia. Tough 5EC is a selective contact herbicide that synergizes with HPPD inhibitors and enhances atrazine with fast results. Tough 5EC is in stock and ready to ship. Ask your local retailer about Tough 5EC or visit BelgiumUSA.com. Always read and follow label instructions. Most folks just stick with the diesel engine oil they know because why sweat the details? But you don't. You're one of those who'd make the switch, and we're talking to you. Cenex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils give you the smartest oil for the toughest conditions. While the others experience wear and tear, you give complacency a kick in the pants. Cenex Maxtron Diesel Engine Oils, oil that runs smart. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Ristvet. 
As Russia's war in Ukraine rages on, Ukraine's Grain Trader Union reports that farmers planted 31% of expected area thus far. The expected area is down nearly a quarter from last year due to the war, so they have planted 31% of the reduced area to this point. Spring planting progress to this point includes 180,000 hectares of spring wheat, along with 844,000 hectares of spring barley and 1.27 million hectares of corn. This year's corn area is expected to total 3.9 million hectares. That's down 28% from the previous year due to this Russian war. Crops are being planted despite shortages of fertilizers and other products needed to maximize yield potential, with farmers wearing protective armor while in the fields in many cases. Farmers fear that they will not have sufficient storage for their harvest, with exports through the ports expected to remain shut down until at least this fall, and that's if the war were to end today, which it isn't. Meanwhile, we continue to see reports of Russia targeting ports and other infrastructure, along with intentionally damaging or confiscating tractors and grain storage. And let's take a look at some of those commodity numbers. July corn up seven and three quarters at eight eleven and a quarter. July beans up thirteen and a quarter at sixteen fifty eight and a half. Bean meal July down one eighty a ton at four twenty nine ten. Bean oil July up two oh five at eighty two fourteen. Wheat Chicago July up eleven and three quarters at ten sixty seven and a quarter. Kansas City July up fifteen and a quarter at eleven thirteen and a quarter. That July Minneapolis wheat is up eleven at eleven seventy eight and three quarters. Live cattle June unchanged at one thirty five twenty feeders May down fifty two at one sixty ninety. And those May lean hogs they are up a buck two at one hundred dollars and ninety cents. While the Dow Jones is down just a couple of ticks. The dollar index is sitting at 103.2 and crude oil is trading down just 37 cents at 104.80 a barrel. This is AOA. I'm Richard Risvet. 54. So basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going. <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Thanks for tuning in today to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. Ethanol has been in the news a lot lately. We've seen a lot of action happen both on the federal level. We saw President Joe Biden here two weeks ago issue the emergency order allowing E15 to be sold nationwide throughout the summer for 2022 only. That is worth mentioning. And then we've seen a number of states enact state policies. Iowa, perhaps most recently with the biofuels access bill they passed last week. Then we saw letters from eight Corn Belt state governors to Uncle Sam looking for that permanent fix for ethanol. Corn growers, ethanol producers, they have felt like they've been watching a tennis match with these issues going back and forth. And another group has also been in the crosshairs dealing with this uncertainty, and that's the fuel retailer, the folks who finally get that gallon into the gas tanks of the consumer's vehicle. Well, Ron Lamberti, the chief marketing officer at the American Coalition for Ethanol, spends a lot of his time talking with retailers across the country, and I thought it was time we check in on the state of that industry. So joining me now is Ron Lamberti from ACE. Ron, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Happy to do it, Mike. Let's talk about the state of the retailer here in 2022. Ron, we've just come through the pandemic. We saw driving miles decrease. What was the ethanol access like at the retailers over the past two years? Were we continuing to see new signups and new distributors? We didn't see a lot of new signups or distributors over that period of time just because volume was 
was down and there was so much uncertainty of what to do. Plus, during that period of time, if you remember right before the pandemic, we had that kind of slap fight going on between Saudi Arabia and Russia to see who could sell gas the cheapest. So ethanol, by comparison, was fairly expensive during that period of time. So the the math that makes it tra- that makes ethanol attractive to retailers, which is that ethanol costs less, and so you can make a product that's lower priced and higher octane. That math wasn't really in existence during the pandemic. Now coming out of it, uh, and especially with this last bump up in gas prices because of the the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, ethanol's never been. Uh, it's been a, I shouldn't say never, but it's it's been a long time since the the different differential in price between ethanol and gas has made it as attractive as it is right now. So we're getting more interest now. You know, it's being talked about more because the president mentioned it and and did the emergency waiver. But uh, uh, so interest is picking up. I think uh, I I think people, the the retailers can see that there's um, some efforts being made to make it permanent again because we thought it was permanent last time. So um, so I think uh, the trade shows I've been going to the last two, three months have been a lot of interest in E15 and some interest in E85. Ron, you mentioned the economics of E15 and E85 at the gas pump in 2022 certainly look, look better than they have for a long time. And as these retailers are having these discussions, where do you see the most potential for growth for E15 or E85, those higher blends of ethanol? Which states to you are the, the, the most likely places we could see volume increase? Well, I don't, I don't know about states specifically, but just in general, retailers, I think, finally understand that E15 could be done. I mean, the reason E15 was chosen as opposed to 20 or 30 or something like that is that all of the above ground equipment, your dispensers or the things that we call pumps, um, the the gas pumps and all of their parts are tested with 15% alcohol and they always have been. And so the thought was you could just put E15 in a tank and you could sell it right away. Now, naturally our friends in the oil companies uh, decided to throw up a bunch of roadblocks and lawsuits and EPA got scared and enacted some rules that basically frighten a lot of retailers thinking that they can't do it using their existing equipment. But I think they're starting, you know, that ice is starting to melt and they're starting to understand that they can use their existing stuff. Um, And so they're now just, you know, kind of double checking because it's sort of the questions I get at these shows are like, really, can I? Because I checked my tank and it's up to 100 percent ethanol. And my nozzles are, you know, 15, are guaranteed to 15. My pumps are whatever their parts are. So I think it's just a matter, it's more a matter of this last piece where it was, you know, they don't want to do that hassle of having to change out, not being able to sell it during the summer. And then, you know, September 15th, you sell it again because customers can't get used to that. So, um, you know, I, I think there's obviously since every station probably not every station, but like 90% of stations have equipment where they could sell E15 today, tomorrow, whatever it would be, without making a big investment. And E85, you do have to buy some different dispensers that are a little more expensive. And, and uh, so I think the, the quick change would still be E15. Ron, as those equipment upgrades come into focus for a lot of retailers, I understand Iowa, with their biofuels access bill, allocated some funding for those retailers if they need to make those upgrades in order to dispense biofuels. Are you seeing similar actions develop in other states, or what sort of policy actions could we do to help remove that risk from these these retail station owners? Well, that's that's always been the difficult part, because here I tell people, you know, you don't really have to make an investment, and then you know, we make programs so that they can get money back if they want to make upgrades. So it's it should be seen as a bonus to them. I was always been aggressive at having funds to upgrade stations to do E85 or now to do E15. Um, and both them and Nebraska now have a tax credit you get for selling E15 um, and E85. And so that's supposed to pay for some of it. But probably the biggest thing on the horizon is sometime late spring, early summer, we should hear from the USDA with their another $100 million in uh, biofuels infrastructure partnership grants that they uh, plan to, you know, put out here and, in, in, you know, it'll be available for people to apply for this summer. That'll pay for probably half the cost of their equipment and maybe 25% of their underground stuff. So, um, you know, we're, that's, we have a website that's flexfuelforward.com that's designed for retailers. And we keep that updated with all the different kinds of incentives because there's, 
state incentives in some places, not very many, um, but there are also private incentives where like, a, you know, we've had plants that have, you know, given money to different locations. So there's all kinds of sources. And that's one of the things that I do is try and help these guys find money to do the upgrades that they want to do so they can, you know, sell and promote ethanol because for a, the, you know, a single store owner, sometimes that's a great differentiation. There's a lot of, there's a lot of stations that are open right now um, that wouldn't be open if they hadn't adopted, uh, you know, fuels like E15 and E85. So uh, we hope more of them will take advantage of it and, and uh, you know, try and get as much information as we can out to the stations. And and uh, if you if you have a station that wants it, just refer them to that flexfuelforward.com and they should be able to get what they need to upgrade. Ron, you mentioned you go to a lot of shows, you speak with these retailers when they're learning about, you know, what's coming in their industry. And I'm curious because you can't open a newspaper or turn on the radio for five minutes without hearing this push for electrification and widespread EV usage heard from Secretary Buttigieg this morning that he thinks rural America should be a prime spot for electric vehicles. As you're talking to retailers and this EV push is coming, do they see biofuels as a the liquid fuel option they should partner up with? Or are they growing more accustomed to embracing biofuels broadly? Well, I think they're looking for alternatives to having to do electrification because, you know, they see the numbers of vehicles out there. As much as this is being talked about, as much as we're seeing commercials, the numbers of vehicles being purchased, I mean, last year was the best year ever, and there were 400,000 plug-in electric vehicles sold out of 15.5 million vehicles on the road. Um, you know, so I, I think they know that the, that it's still a ways off, and and I think they're they're bothered a little bit by thinking they've got to change their whole operation now when the vehicles are still a long ways away. So the thing that you just said is what we're trying to remind them of is that you know ethanol and especially E85 is a low carbon option. Um, depending on what we can get done with the fuel scoring, if they're going to treat us fairly with things like all the different methods that some farmers are using to grow corn more more uh, economic or more environmentally friendly ways um you know that we could be at zero before an electric car is um and so they know the numbers about the cars they know you know what's out there with with vehicles and and uh i think the biggest question i have was whether or not this 15 is going to be permanent that's probably the biggest one and then we you know we focus on telling them that you know, here's a low carbon option. If you don't want to go electric right now, maybe you ought to consider E85 as your low carbon fuel. Um, and so there's some discussion on it, but it's still, when it comes right down to it, you know, they're businessmen. It's all about math. It's, you know, if I can make more money selling this, if I can get more customers selling this, um, and the numbers are there for flex fuels and fuels in between from 15 to 85. And so I think, uh, you know, the, the price situation has helped us make that point a little more stark so uh you know it's a good time to be talking to people it's just it would be nice uh uh, you know usda and get this money out so we can get some some uh stations going and and i think what we found everywhere is once they get going they don't stop people start using it they like it and they keep using it that is good news, Ron. Once people get to experience it and they realize that, my goodness, it is a great fuel for motor vehicles, they keep coming back. Folks, we've been talking to Ron Lamberti, the Senior Vice President, Chief of Marketing there at the American Coalition for Ethanol. Ron, for folks who want to keep up to date with the work that ACE is doing in the ethanol space as you push for permanence of E15 sales year round, where can they go to keep up to speed? Well, our website is uh, pretty simple. It's ethanol.org. You got to remember it's Oregon.com. So, but yeah, ethanol.org. And like I said, for a for a fuel marketer, uh, we've got the flexfuelforward.com website. But uh, to keep that up, and we have Ethanol Today magazine that uh, comes out, and many uh, hear from us on stuff like this from time to time. But ethanol.org is our website ethanol.org folks check that out if you're curious about adding e15 to your retail location ron thank you so much for joining us today appreciate your insight thanks for having me and folks stick with us chandler gould the ceo of the national association of wheat growers will join us after the break we're going to dig into what these announcements of u.s food aid made for american growers stay with us here on aoa Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around.
You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration. Retinitis pigmentosa. Usher syndrome. And the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We We win. We, we, we we are are the Foundation foundation Fighting fighting Blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. I'll take Dig a Little, Learn a Lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too, through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Joy Kirkpatrick, Farm Succession Specialist with the University of Wisconsin-Madison in the Division of Extension, is here with us to discuss how we can manage stress on the farm as we begin our busy spring season. Joy, what steps can farmers take during planting season to manage that stress? It's a busy time of year, but eating right, right? Thinking about maybe not... And it's hard, right? You're on the go um, and not filling up with like Mountain Dew and and candy bars, right? Having a a better balanced um, meals would be really important. The other thing that we talk about is getting exercise. So if it's something that you can just take a walk on your property and not have it in conjunction with an actual task can really help separate out and and help bring down those stress hormones. So eating right and exercise and then keeping your sense of humor is another one that we try to encourage people, you know, throughout the day. Two more things would be avoid unhealthy de-stressing techniques. We don't want um, too much alcohol or or things like that to be the the crutch that you use to de-stress. And then finally is reaching out to your support group, your social community. Where can people go for more information on mental health and well-being? Farmstress.org. That covers the 12 north central states, so the pretty much the Midwest, and they have resources for all of the different states listed on that website. Fantastic, folks. That's Joy Kirkpatrick, Farm Succession Specialist with the University of Wisconsin-Madison Division of Extension. Thanks for joining us here around the table. To learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership, visit cooperativeownership.com. I get it, slip it, cuff it, check it twice a day. I get it, slip it, cuff it, check it in the morning and before dinner. I get it, slip it, cuff it, check it, and share it with my doctor. Nearly one in two U.S. adults have high blood pressure. That's why it's important to self-monitor your blood pressure in four easy-to-remember steps. It starts with a monitor. Now that I know my blood pressure numbers, I talked with my doctor. We're getting those numbers down. Be next to talk to your doctor about your blood pressure numbers. Get down with your blood pressure. Self-monitoring is power. Learn more at manageyourbp.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council, the American Heart Association, and the American Medical Association. In partnership with the Office of Minority Health and Health Resources and Services Administration. 
Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. You know, we have continued to see the war in Ukraine in the headlines. The Russian assault on that country continues. As of now, it's estimated that there are nearly 5 million refugees from Ukraine moving into the rest of Europe. And there are broad global concerns about food access. Obviously, we've all seen the prices of goods increasing. Well, as we look over at Ukraine there, Grocery store shelves are sometimes empty. The access isn't there, period, no matter how much money you've got. To that end, the U.S. government has just voted to send some additional food aid to that region. Joining me to discuss it is Chandler Gould. He's the CEO of the National Association of Wheat Growers. And Chandler, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you and your audience. I appreciate it. Well, let's talk about what the USDA or what the USA recently announced in terms of food aid. Chandler, give us the dollar figures. How much are we talking? Well, so the biggest dollar figure that we're looking at is the $1.6 billion for USAID. That is going to be a significant help on the humanitarian effort, uh, not only for the people in Ukraine, but also for the surrounding countries, that, as you just mentioned, where the 5 million refugees have, have, taken, uh, have fled to. And then also, we you know, we're very concerned about the Middle East, which is a very heavy wheat-based diet, and the developing countries in Africa that were very dependent on that Ukrainian export. But the government's also done several other things. Um, you know, they've uh, released $20 million from the Bill Emerson Human Humanitarian uh, Trust Fund, as well as uh, another $670 million in food aid assistance. So these are the things that the White House and the USDA can do immediately to help those who are being either directly affected by the war that Russia has declared or, or from the lack of export markets coming out of Ukraine. Chandler, if you can, talk to us a little bit about how this funding works. Is USDA going to be jumping into the markets to physically buy wheat, load it on boats, and ship it out? So, through the, so, so the, not the USDA, but USAID would be the one so the, uh, uh, that would be working with these programs. And then all of it goes through a tendering process. So, you know, they'll make a determination of whether or not they need wheat or if they actually need uh, flour. So, that'll determine what they buy. But you know, uh, Mike, one of the biggest issues that we're facing now, and you already mentioned this in the introduction, the cost of transportation of getting this food over there has almost doubled. I believe I heard uh, from a friend of mine at the World Food Program that their transportation cost has gone up uh, somewhere between 50 and 70 percent. So uh, this money could buy more food if there was a way for us to get it over there uh, at a cheaper amount. So I know. I, I know that's how it's, I know we're going to be shipping it over there, but if there's any way that we can reduce that transportation cost, that would help us spread that aid out to more people and more countries. Yeah, that's a great point. These transportation costs have gone parabolic over the past year. Chandler, one of the things that you mentioned, I've seen it mentioned in a lot of headlines, and frankly, it's just not all that familiar to a lot of folks here in the countryside, the Bill Emerson Humanitarian Trust. What, what is that? So the Bill Emerson Humanitarian Trust was set up uh, actually several decades ago uh, to basically be a storage of, a, uh, of food products and for grains, for special things like this, or not special things, that was bad wording, sorry, um, for, you know, for incidents like this where you've either got significant natural disaster or where you've got war-torn war countries. Um, it is a trust fund that has to be released. It's not triggered just by an event. Um, so the uh, USDA has the ability with, with the secretary and presidential approval to release a, a certain percentage of it during a time of crisis. Of course, we would never want to release the whole thing because we don't ever know exactly what else is going to be going on in the world. But uh, it shows the significance of the impact that the Russian war uh, is having because we don't normally trigger the Bill, the Bill Emerson Humanitarian Trust Fund. We usually just use USAID. So that lets you know that I'm thinking that the government's thinking this war is going to go on longer than we had anticipated. And the longer it goes on, clearly the more people and countries that will be affected. 
That is no doubt correct, Chandler. As, as you think about this food aid being rolled out, how does this impact your members, wheat growers across the country? Well, you know, uh, for all farmers, including wheat growers, you know, we take a very, uh, we take a lot of pride in the fact that we not only feed the United States, but we are 20% of the calories consumed uh, around the world. And so being able to participate in these programs uh, helps uh, stabilize demand uh, within our own uh, domestic industry. And, you know, that's very important right now because the futures prices that we have uh, looked at or been experiencing in, in reflection, you know, that's limiting up and limiting down because of the war um, is really causing a lot of volatility. And, you know, I think a lot of people outside of agriculture would think, hey, these high prices or, or this uh, the volatility in the markets will cause farmers to plant more wheat. But really what it does is it signals to them that the market is responding to a geopolitical issue and not supply and demand. And the USDA is already predicting a 2 to 5% less uh, uh, acreage in spring wheat. So this volatility in the market is having the exact opposite effect, I think, of what most people outside of agriculture would think. So being able to use a uh, guaranteed export through USAID will help us stabilize that to an extent. It will indeed. Chandler, before we let you go, farm bill discussions are heating up. Are there any points you're really advocating for here for the 23 farm bill? Well, we are wrapping up our farm bill survey um, and we'll be having a board meeting at the end of June and we will have our priorities ready in July. Um, we've got about 250 responses back from the growers across the 20 states that we represent. Uh, I'm going to be very shocked if crop insurance is not number one uh, or number two, maybe even looking at expanding some of the revenue and protection products they have. And then the main thing or the big thing that I think NOG is really going to have to look at is if we're going to, if we're going to ask for a reference price increase, how do we pay for it? And what are we willing to give up? Because there's no new money in this farm bill. And so if we want to increase the reference price 50 cents, where do we find the $18 billion to do that? That's a rough estimate. So I think that's going to be the biggest question that we face. All right. Those discussions will be coming hot and heavy. Folks, if you're a wheat grower, get that survey response into Chandler so they can have those coordinated here by the end of July. Chandler Gould, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Have a good day. And folks, tune in tomorrow to AOA. We'll have a couple more conversations here from Washington, D.C., and we'll talk about the difference between environmental protection and environmental conservation. So we'll see you on Wednesday for AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Less isn't always more. Take managing a fleet, for instance. You need a more complete additive package for a more complete burn, and that's exactly what you get with Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Roadmaster XL even adds more life to your fuel system's injectors and injector pumps. That's a lot more than we can say about typical number two diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel, diesel that doesn't mess around. Mike Rowe here with a gentle reminder that civilization is held together by pipes, wires, and cables. It's true. There are over 5 million miles of gas lines, power lines, fiber optic lines, water lines, and sewer lines all buried beneath your feet. And every 60 seconds, somebody digs into one. Look, if you're thinking about digging around, do yourself a favor and call 811 first just to find out what's down there. Trust me. You don't want to find out the hard way. Call or click 811 before you dig and visit safeexcavator.com for more info.